0: He worked his way up to the top job at one of Australia's largest wealth management companies. You'd think for an ambitious finance guy, that'd be the pinnacle, but not Daniel Maddavan. He left JB Weir and he dived headlong into impact investing. Many would have thought he was crazy, but others took it as a sign that there was a shift happening in the world of investing. And that's what the Good Future podcast is all about. My name is John Treadgold and I'm here to ask the big questions about the future of sustainable business, the new economy and how your investment decisions, no matter how big or small, can have an impact. Now I covered a lot of ground speaking with Daniel and to be honest we went a lot deeper than I'd anticipated. Daniel lives in Melbourne, but he called in from San Francisco. He was very generous with his time, given he was over there attending the SOCAP conference. He gave us a rundown on what's happening there. He's certainly a busy guy. Last year, Daniel took on the role of CEO at the Impact Investment Group, IIG, one of Australia's leading impact fund managers. I dug into the projects they've got on the go, including building the world's tallest timber office building, I was pretty blown away by the prospects of that one, as well as a new retail fund they've got in the works. I was super interested there, but Daniel would only give us a taste as it's not yet been officially announced. I also went back in time to get a feel for Daniel's background and what brought him to the impact investing space. At the same time, he offered some very sound advice about getting your act together and getting a little more purpose in your life. And he speaks from experience there having taken some big leaps of faith in his time. We also shifted beyond the types of investing that IIG is focused on, and I asked Daniel about investing offshore in less developed markets, which is where I've been focused for a number of years. And Daniel had some great insights, stressing that deploying capital offshore and supporting entrepreneurs that might not have easy access to capital can in fact offer some of the best impact return on investments, that you could possibly make now on the whole this conversation was a really great one to have early on in the life of this podcast daniel is one of australia's leading thought leaders in this space he's done a huge amount to boost awareness and this shined through in the conversation where he breaks down some complex investing concepts making it all really accessible to those who aren't as financially minded daniel shows his skills as a storyteller And we discussed the role that storytelling has in helping people understand the power that we all have to make a change and to make an impact. Avoiding financial jargon, Daniel's goal is to democratise impact investing to empower people and to make it all more inclusive. This was a hugely informative conversation for me. It was a great opportunity to ask some burning questions that I've had for a long time with one of Australia's leading voices. And if you want to hear more of Daniel's insights, you'll be able to catch him at the Impact Investing Summit at the beginning of November in Sydney, where he'll not only be speaking, but he'll be front and centre as MC. So you're pretty much guaranteed to have a good time. But enough from me. I'm sure you want to dive in and hear what Daniel has to say. But I do have one small request, and that is for any feedback you might have. This podcast is very fresh. This is episode number two. And I'd love to hear from you to let me know what I'm doing right and what could be improved. I'd be eternally grateful if you could leave a review or comment on iTunes. That feedback is super helpful. Plus, it might just push us up the rankings, and uh, every little bit helps. We're also on Instagram. You can find us at Good Future Podcast. That's all one word. All right. With that out of the way, let's dive in. Here we go. Look, Daniel, I'm keen to dive into your background, but I think the listeners would love to hear a little bit about where you're at right now, and that's the SOCAP conference in San Fran. Can you explain what it's all about and the atmosphere? I
1: probably can't explain the atmosphere yet because the conference itself doesn't start until tomorrow morning, officially, but we've been here for the last couple of days with a group of 50 of our investors and friends ahead of SOCAP. SOCAP runs for three days, and we've been here for two days meeting with a whole range of other fund managers investors entrepreneurs and people just doing amazing work both in their community and within the sort of impact investing community here to learn more about what they're up to and what's happening so there's a real buzz about our group and it's great for us to bring a contingent of uh, 50 aussies into san francisco so uh, we're really looking forward to the next three days SOCAP, having been here before, is a pretty jam-packed three days where about, I think it's two to 3,000 people come from around the world to meet and also to hear from some of the leading thinkers in a whole range of impact areas, from regenerative agriculture to microfinance to impact venture capital. It all happens here this week.
0: Well, that's quite a group. How is San Fran going to handle 50 Aussies on tour? You know, I was worried that
1: San Francisco could not hold the energy of 50 Aussies all in the one place at the one time, but it's doing well so far. And it's a wonderful opportunity for us as well to just keep building, not just the relationships with our investors, but also uh, explore a whole range of different ideas with each other, you know, and at times get very philosophical. You know, over the last few days, we've had an amazing opportunity to meet with some of the godfathers and godmothers of impact investing here in the US. And, you know, it included last night a conversation with Jed Emerson, you know, exploring some pretty deep questions around what the purpose of capital is for, what responsibility those with capital have to sort of shaping the future of the planet that we want to live on.
0: That's right. And it seems that that's really important, having these conversations and and sharing philosophies. Do you think there's a big difference there between an impact investing conference and, and perhaps the finance conferences you've been to in the past?
1: Yes would be the simple answer. It's interesting because it's as much about the questions I think that get asked. I wouldn't want to sort of make the presumption that we're sitting here with some set of answers. The mainstream finance world or any other industry doesn't have. I think what's different is the types of questions that get asked and the types of ideas that get explored. In particular about how capital is used and What it is supporting and are the things that we're using capital for, the things that we're investing in, are they things that are serving us either as a community or as a society or or as a planet? And they're pretty big questions. And it's not that everybody here agrees with each other. There's some really robust debate about that as well. And I think that's what's a really interesting part of a conference like this is there's a space here to explore some of those really tricky questions.
0: Yeah. And I guess that comes back to the fact that it is a young industry and there are a lot of challenges to be to be sort of stumbled through and being able to come together and share your ideas is really important in that.
1: It is. It's an interesting question about how young the industry is. I personally don't see it so much as an industry, it's something that Jed talked about last night, and I think he, I haven't had a chance to read his new book yet, but um, I have a copy as of last night. You know, he's gone back and explored that, A lot of these things that we're grappling with are actually questions that different societies have been grappling with for hundreds, if not thousands of years. We're sometimes grappling with them in a new form, but they're questions about how we organise ourselves, how power works, uh, how society is ordered and how we uh, work within the boundaries of nature. These are all questions that many societies have grappled with uh, for a very long time. So probably a different context, I think. Something that Michelle Long talked about on our first morning we were here is this idea that for the first time in history, we actually have this reservoir of capital that if put to use in the right way could actually solve many of these issues. And we have this kind of wealth that we've accumulated like has never been accumulated before. And this question around what we do with that. And, you know, that's probably the big question that, uh, that most of us uh, are, uh, are grappling with or have been over at least over the last couple of days while we've been talking with each other.
0: Mm, and so if, if the issues and the problems certainly aren't new, is it perhaps the language that's new? I mean, we, we obviously have this constant battle with defining impact investing and this sort of thing. Do you think that's part of the zeitgeist?
1: Yes, so some of the terminology is new. I think there's a really interesting debate, even over the last couple of days as we've talked to different groups here, about whether that's a good thing or not. There seems to be very different schools of thought on whether it's good to have a group and a culture and a language that identifies as impact investors or as as an impact investing community or a field because it makes it a thing. And whether people call that a field or a movement, it's something that people can identify with and identify as belonging to. So... There's a lot of people that feel that that's really important. There's others that feel that it's limiting and that ultimately, if we really want every fund manager, every investor, every institution and every business to be thinking about the impact that they have on people and the planet, to normalise that is a lot easier if, if we don't make it this niche thing and if we don't make it a separate thing, but that it's just something that's going to ultimately, we ultimately hope will be integrated into the way that people consider making their financial and business decisions.
0: Yeah, keeping it inclusive is really important. And finance language can be hard enough, let alone if you um, if you start throwing <laughs> a, a whole new bunch of it at people and say, you know, start again and here's the new bunch. But you know, that that's your journey. And, and I'd be really keen to look back at, at your journey. And you went from running one of Australia's leading investment managers, 450 odd people under you at one stage, and then you left. You didn't dive straight into impact investing, but I wonder, had you heard of, of the space at that point? Was it on your radar?
1: Not really is the answer. So I was at J.B. Weir for 12 years, just over 12 years. Uh, when I left, I'd heard of the term, but I wouldn't have done a very good job of explaining what it meant if you had of asked me then. And it wasn't a space that I had any designs on working in, I had left and thought I would do something different. I, I was very keen to make sure that whatever I did next, I wanted to make sure I had a sense of purpose in whatever I did next, but I didn't know it would be impact investing. It wasn't until I actually did some work with uh, foundation for young Australians and I met all of these young social entrepreneurs and they were doing these, you know, this amazing work and trying to build businesses, genuinely, legitimately great businesses, but at the same time, solve or contribute to solutions towards some pretty complex social problems that i sort of that opened my mind to the idea that you could use business as a force for good as opposed to you know using business for business and making lots of money and then if you wanted to do good giving it away later that you could actually combine those two things that was pretty sort of earth-shattering for me i had never really thought about how you use business in that way before And that led me to doing a whole bunch of research. So I did a lot of homework on, well, where are these entrepreneurs getting capital from? That led me down a pathway of exploring impact investing, which then opened my mind to, well, it's not just entrepreneurs that need access to capital. There's a whole range of other groups that if they had better access to capital or better types of capital, more appropriate types of capital, often where the provider of that capital, the investor, cared as much about the outcomes that they were trying to Achieve as they did, that would provide a much more stable and secure source and appropriate source of of finance for them. That really opened up my mind to impact investing. And next thing I knew it, I was uh, running a small nonprofit organization called Impact Investing Australia, which I did with Rosemary Addis for a couple of years. And that was an amazing experience. Probably the furthest thing from what I imagined I would be doing <laughs> that I could have been doing. That was an awesome two and a half years spending our time working with this growing group of people and organisations uh, trying to do this um, and trying to do it in practice. That was a lot of fun.
0: Great that you took the time and took the initiative and make that effort to search and think about what you wanted to do. Was that a a sort of a conscious decision to say, I don't want to do anything. I want to have this space and and really work it out. Because I think a lot of people are kind of afraid to um, to take that leap. This is what works for me.
1: I, I don't know that this is a formula that will work for anyone else other than me. But what worked for me was to think about what I want to do with my time as a very distinct decision from what you know, I'm currently doing with my time. I meet a lot of people that say, well, I don't feel like I have a lot of purpose in my job or I'm, I'd am i like to do something with more meaning. What should I do about that? For me, it's very difficult to explore something new when you're attached to something already. For me, they're two very different decisions, like to stop doing something, whether that's because it lacks meaning or because the job's done or because you're ready to try the next thing, whatever the reason is, but a decision to stop doing something is very different and distinct to the decision to start doing something. I see them as two, two very different things. And I personally have always found that if I stop doing something and then give myself the space to explore what that next thing is, I make far better decisions and I end up feeling a lot better about the choices I make when I then choose to start doing something. You know, I don't think I ever would have run a small nonprofit organisation if I had have been looking for the next thing whilst I was still at JB Weir. I needed six months to think very differently about the world um, and decompress and, and sort of, you know, explore new ideas. And I have personally always found that giving myself the space to do that creates an openness that I couldn't have got otherwise.
0: That's right. That space, yeah, it is really important, isn't it? And, and for people not to think that it's just being idle and that, you know, gaps in a resume are, are a problem, because I think that's really old thinking and that you would have been able to have conversations with people and say, well, you know, I was researching, I was working for foundations, you know, you ended up at Impact Investing Australia, where I'm sure you did lots of research, you know, networking would have been perfect for where you ended up and getting a feel for the sector. It obviously spoke to you and eventually you ended up at the uh, impact investing group IIG be interested to sort of dig into why you chose that shop in particular and, and what makes the team unique
1: they would have me so that was the basically the reason I joined <laughs> oh, <come on. laughs> no there's some personal reasons for why I thought this was the right work for me to be doing now and also there's some organizational the personal reasons for me is I feel like I'm at my best when I'm helping to grow a business when I'm working on doing difficult and complex work and when I'm working with people that I admire. And so all of those ingredients were present in IRG and are still present in my job here. Like I'm terrible with care and maintenance jobs. I'm terrible at just kind of managing a very stable business. I don't think I'm at my best when I do that. I get bored and I'm probably not great to be around when I'm bored. I felt like it had all of these ingredients that were a really good fit for me personally, and then as an organisation, I have always felt like IOG has a courage that I admired and still admire. This courage to go first, to do things when they're they're not proven, to try new things, to be vulnerable, and I I had always admired that, and so you know the opportunity to be part of that to be part of pioneering things was one that was too good to pass up. And also, frankly, you know, the business is owned by Barry Liverman and Danny Almagor to have owners of a business that have the courage that they have to not be in this in a theoretical sense, but to be in this two feet, you know, off the cliff and the courage that they have shown in the team and the idea that you can use business as a force for good and that you can invest in a way that serves both people and the planet and still do well out of that, that courage was inspiring to me. And to have owners that probably have a bigger risk appetite than me, I don't think every CEO gets to say that. That's also uh, pretty unique and and pretty special.
0: Yeah, it must be great to have that backing and sounds like a great platform to be able to push forward into some uncharted territory. And, and that's certainly uh, seems to be what you've been doing at the IOG. Um, now, I'm interested in, in the asset classes that you've chosen to focus on, being solar farms, for one, sustainable buildings, uh, as well as venture capital in the form of the Giant Leap Fund. Can you explain why you chose those sectors? There's
1: a few different answers to that, and it does depend on the asset class. I think one of the early challenges for a business like IOG is how do you get to a point where you have a business that is of a scale that it is a sustainable business. I think one of the early choices that was made which makes sense to me is if we assume we want to be doing all investing, being conscious about the impact that we are having, that means we need to build out investment opportunities in every type of investment in every type of asset class. So if you're starting from that point and you also have the challenge of trying to build a sustainable funds management business, um, You're going to look for those or start with those asset classes, which you can bring impact to, but are also going to enable you to build or scale up a business quickly. So from a property perspective, that's an asset class that most Australians are pretty comfortable with. Bringing an impact lens to that was a very natural starting point for IRG. Mm-hmm. The sort of impact thesis around property and the space that we are playing in has been sort of emerged in two different areas one is around green buildings and and you know the built environment is responsible for you know anywhere between sort of 20 and 25 percent of carbon emissions so taking a more sustainable approach to how we approach the built environment is going to be a, a really important question for us so you know one of the areas that we've done a lot of work in is how do we play a role in pushing the boundaries of what sustainability can mean in the built environment so to give you an example of that you know, we recently, and our understanding is for a short window of time, we are building the world's tallest timber office building. It's a 10-story building, uh, nicknamed K5, which is in, uh, which in, in the Brisbane Showgrounds development. We're developing that building with Lendlease. It's very close to being complete and, you know, using... Cross-laminated timber as a technology. It's 40% less carbon intensive than steel and concrete. And it has a whole range of other benefits in construction from a safety perspective. And also there's some emerging research around the health benefits for people to work in environments that are made of natural materials. That's an area where we're trying to do our best to push boundaries and set new benchmarks around, well, what does sustainability actually mean? And on the other side, we acquired the Young Husband Wool Stores in Kensington in Victoria, and we we spent an entire year uh, working with the local community, doing community engagement around what we could use that precinct for that was something that made sense for our investors, but also worked to support the vibrancy in that community. That kind of urban regeneration is another area that we feel pretty strongly about from a property perspective. You know, and venture capital, our venture capital team is really focused on, as the first impact VC fund in in Australia, focused firstly on proving that you can invest in startups and make great returns and support great entrepreneurs, but also support great outcomes and impact. Uh, So we focus on a couple of different impact areas there. Uh, Environment is one. Equitable outcomes is another for people. And also uh, health um, and well-being is another area of focus for us in our venture capital fund. And then for renewables, uh, I probably don't need to go too far into this. It's pretty well documented in Australia over mm. the last, uh, you know, the last couple of years, just how lacking any supportive policy environment is for our transition away from fossil fuel based energy production to renewable energy you know we have really strong views about why it makes not just sense for the planet but actually complete economic sense both for our investors and for consumers to to transition uh, towards a renewable future. We saw an opportunity to play a role in that transition, and that's what we've been aiming to do.
0: Yeah, look, it's a really interesting grouping there, and obviously I think there's a lot of people that would be keen to invest in renewable energy. You've obviously got plenty of wholesale investors and, you know, it doesn't even have to be an ethical decision. As you said, it's very much just a, a good risk allocation and, and plenty of solid earnings going forward. But in, in you've talked a little bit about democratising impact in in some of the, the thought pieces that IAG have put out recently. I wonder are there efforts and, and what thinking you've put into making these investments accessible to a wider population? What's the potential there? Would you ever offer a, a retail product?
1: You've asked a question which I will have an amazingly brilliant answer to uh, early next year. We have a really strong belief that opening up access to invest, whether it be renewables or other forms of investment that are good for communities or are part of creating the future that we want to live in and also want to hand to our kids, uh, should be open to as many people as possible, not just uber wealthy people. We have been working in a dark cave somewhere on some plans that over the next few months we will be able to talk about that I can tell you will be about as retail as you possibly could go with a couple of partner organisations, which I think will go a long way to helping democratise access to, to to a lot of these investments. And if it was only us involved, I would happily share the secret sauce now But we've got a couple of partner organizations, which um, I don't want to speak on behalf of until they're ready to. So, uh, yes, I feel very strongly about democratizing impact investment. And yes, we're working on some stuff that I think is incredibly exciting and we'll enjoy talking about over the next couple of months.
0: Very good. A cliffhanger. I like it. We'll uh, we'll have to catch up in a couple of months (laughs) and have another conversation then. So everybody will have to stay tuned. I think that's an interesting one about making it more inclusive and stretching even wider than that. If people were at home, you know, listening in the gym or they've got their lunch break and they're they're a bit sick of the office in their cubicle, they don't feel like they're working with purpose. Do you have any sort of tips, anything they can, um, you know, small actions they can make to make a shift and and live a little bit differently?
1: I mean, work's not the only place that you can get a sense of purpose. I mean, many people find that Mm. in a huge range of other pursuits, so... whether that's with family, whether that's with their sports or their their hobbies, and a lot of people find that in either giving back to their local community through volunteer work or working in, it could be their church or their synagogue or their mosque or whatever that is for that individual. And I think a lot of people also get a sense of purpose by working with a non-profit organisation, so getting involved either as, uh, as a volunteer or a board member you know, I know for me has been above and beyond my day-to-day work has been something that I have got a lot from and also felt like I have been able to contribute a lot too. So I sit on the board of San Filippo Children's Foundation, which is a medical research foundation. I also chair uh, YGAP, which is an organisation focused on supporting entrepreneurs in, and local leaders within some of the world's toughest contexts. So we we support entrepreneurs in uh, South Africa, Kenya, uh, Bangladesh, and we have a, a an accelerator program for female founders across Africa. And before I come back to your question, something that's interesting about the democratization of impact investment, and was also something we were talking about today, it's, it's not just about democratizing the opportunity for people to invest in these things, but it's also about how we democratize access to capital. So, There are entrepreneurs that I've met in Bangladesh who are every bit as good as entrepreneurs that I've met in San Francisco, but they do not have the same access to capital as uh, an entrepreneur does in San Francisco. So, you know, there's also what impact and opportunities are being left on the table undiscovered or unsupported because people just don't have access capital in the same way so I think we've also got to think about democratizing access to that capital in the same way that we're you know we're, we're trying to tackle democratizing access as investors to those opportunities so I think there's there's ways that people can get you know a sense of purpose for outside of work in in terms of what they contribute but look you know if someone doesn't feel that sense of purpose in the work that they're doing you know there's not really that many options available to you, you either just a, accept that and uh, plug away. That's not something I would be that interested in doing, but each to their own. You try and change your organisation or your job, you know, or the, the makeup of your job so that it has a greater sense of purpose um, and maybe you're in a position where you can do that or maybe you don't have the influence or the, the control over that to, to make that change. And thirdly, you know, go and find something where you do feel that sense of purpose. It's not that difficult an equation. But I'm not underplaying the difficulty in that transition and how painful that can be and, frankly, how scary it can be. Like, it's, it's really scary. Uh, it's, you know, I don't want to be flippant about leaving something that, you know, for me when I was at JBU, I'd been there 12 years. Like, it was the only job I, I'd only ever worked in one company. And it was really, really scary. So I don't want to sort of underplay how big a decision it is. But in reality, they're, they're the options you've got.
0: Yeah and I guess you can make those incremental steps as you said you can you know spend your evening spend your weekend work for a, a local charity find a foundation get on the board you can help out and you know and as you found that led you down a different career path and for these people that that might be the step that they need
1: you know the, the only way to do it is to do it like you're not going to come up with some perfect answer in your head which you know no one has ever thought of and that all of a sudden you know the light bulb comes on and it's like the angels start singing and hallelujah, you've figured it out. You don't know what you don't know, so you got to get out there and try different things. Maybe you take a board on a non-profit organisation and that's like amazing and it sort of fulfils you in, in the way that you thought was missing. Maybe you, you know stop working so much and spend more time with your kids and that changes the way you feel about whatever you're feeling about. Maybe you go and volunteer and that leads you into exploring something or meeting someone and new ideas that you didn't even know existed. Unless you do something different, waiting there for things to change is probably not the the most effective strategy.
0: And, and dipping back again, which I keep doing, I don't want to break your flow too much, but some great points there. I think really important is that the opportunities that are available in less developed markets and the fact that there's a lot of really smart entrepreneurs that are really hungry for capital. And I think that's interesting in Australia, where we find that not a lot of the impact investors are really going offshore. Obviously, some great examples from Leapfrog and that sort of thing, but not many others. How do you see that space? There's obviously a lot of risk and and you need a different set of skills to be able to value assets offshore. How do you see that space? And why do you think Australia is sort of a little bit further behind
1: Well I don't know that it's a problem to start with but I don't know that it's a peculiarity specific to impact investing. I think if you ask most wealth management firms about how investors uh, have allocated their assets, you know I think there would be a general view that Australians are overweight uh, direct shares, overweight uh, property underweight fixed income underweight international equities and i think that's just a peculiarity of our system it's there for a whole range of reasons you know there's various tax advantages both from a franking credit perspective to being listed equities there's a history of companies once publicly owned and going into to private hands whether it was the banks you know 20 30 years ago uh, whether it was the AMPs, whether it was the Telstras. So there's a kind of history and a comfort level that Aussies have with direct share ownership, which is not that common elsewhere in, in the world. And obviously, property is like bricks and mortar, or something that Aussies are also very comfortable with. So uh, I, I think that's just a, a, a general kind of theme for most Aussie investors. And that it plays out, I guess, similarly in the impact space. There's some groups doing some amazing, amazing work. Like we had patama talk uh, today, to uh, on a panel with a, a group of other uh, VC funds, and some of the work that they're doing in Southeast Asia is um, fantastic. Um, yeah. They were talking about an education business that they've invested in that has transformed, like you know, opportunities for people that do not have access to tertiary education, and it has all of a sudden opened up access to literally you know, hundreds of thousands of people and they're able to Mm. track their impact and the income uplift that people are getting within one year post completion of these online courses through this business that they've invested in is something like two to three times the national average. So, you know, demonstrable impact, a thematic that I think we all are pretty comfortable with the concept that education has a huge impact on someone's opportunity set, but Investing in that in Australia is a very different return on investment from an impact perspective versus investing that in an emerging economy where a lot of people don't have that access that we often take for granted in a developed country. So, uh, you know, if you care about those sorts of outcomes for people, I think uh, funds like Patamar and, and emerging markets are some of the best impact return on investments that you could possibly make.
0: That's right, that huge impact potential, but then I guess there are the the difficult risk factors and and I guess a completely different sort of investing mindset that you need, Uh, and it's not simply a matter of allocating capital. It's it's a very different process. And I think there's there's this certain hunger coming from Australian investors, but I'd be interested to hear how, you know, impact investing generally, this question of has it hit the mainstream, which is, uh, I think, a bit of a, an overused question. But in, in the conversations you have with potential co-investors to, to come in on projects with you, um, and, and maybe with more traditional investors that haven't quite got their heads around impact investing, what's the main resistance you feel from them at the moment?
1: I don't know that there's resistance. So maybe that's just because people D- don't say that to me, but, um, um, I, uh, I don't think it's a question of resistance. I still think there's a question of awareness. I think when you sit with most people and you put something in front of them that says you want to invest and here's a set of opportunities which uh, typically often um, or even let's just limit it to that and say here's an opportunity that on a risk reward basis is as good as the opportunity you were thinking about, but this one has a great impact on your local community, or it has a great outcome for the planet. I think that's a pretty straightforward kind of, I don't think you get a lot of resistance to that.
0: Are we not the converted there? I mean, I wonder if there are, you know, traditional investors who who still think that you have to take um, a hit on your returns and a hit on your profit to to have an ethical output. And I mean, look at the big, the big super funds. Um, I mean, I know, you know, there's not that many deals, but you know, would we see a, uh, one of the major super funds having an impact option um, and, and sort of you know having a certain elements of those available. Is that sort of mark maybe as a milestone or? Various
1: super funds that have already kind of made the leap. I mean, Hester, you know, I've set aside, I can't remember what the figure is, but it's in the tens of millions of dollars and have been working on bringing impact investing into their portfolios. Uh, and I know that most of the other major industry funds are at least thinking and talking about this, if not already starting to build some capability internally to bring this into their portfolios. And then you've got leaders like Christian Super, Future Super, uh, Australian Ethical, which are out there already and sort of pioneering the move, if not from a responsible investing perspective, all the way to an impact, bringing impact into their portfolios. So your question earlier is probably more one about belief and paradigm, right? So, I mean, if someone just has a belief that you can't make money and do good at the same time, like I'm not gonna try and convince them otherwise, but that's not a, you know, I guess if you start with, if someone has an open mind and an open heart, what resistance they typically have to impact investing, I would say they don't typically have a resistance to the idea of impact investing. They may have some questions and challenges about how they find the right opportunities to invest in for them. And I think that has been a problem for a lot of Australian investors you know, over the last few years. But frankly, that's changing rapidly. But if you're starting from a point of, is there resistance from the people that don't believe that you can or could, then yeah, sure. I mean, I don't know that there's much you could do about that resistance.
0: Yeah. Oh, look, that's great. A lot of optimism there and and the way Hester are are driving towards it themselves with their own focus in health. And I think that's a really interesting um, way that they do it within their niche. Great to hear from yourself. You've certainly got your ear to the ground that the big friends are all thinking and talking, that there's a lot happening in the background that um, that hopefully we'll see more of in the near future. And I'd like to change gear a little bit. This podcast and this sort of things we're talking about is trying to dig into storytelling and, and digging out the, the stories of impact investing and, and of positive impact and when I've heard you speak um, and some of your writing you're certainly certainly a great storyteller and not afraid of a, a good analogy a good metaphor how important do you see storytelling in trying to spread the word and you know that element that you've got financial returns on one side but the impact return is a product in a way and that, that really needs a story to get it over the line I mean, you had some great ones you, the the platypus comes to mind the sector being <laughs> a zoo these kinds of things from a back street to a super highway i've, I've dug back into some of your old <laughs> you're reaching so, really
1: far back aren't you yeah. yeah it's
0: good stuff it's good stuff i mean and you know it did help me and i think that imagery is really useful And yeah. how do you see that in the impact space
1: i think that's important in most things in life mm. storytelling is something that you know, it's quite primal. And it's, and it, and it's. I, I just think it's part of how we engage with things and connect to things. You know, I think part of what we've done in finance, in particular, you know, it's just numbers. And I know that the numbers are important. I'm not trying to discount the numbers, but part of what we've lost a connection to is I'm actually placing this money, I'm putting this capital with a company or with a fund manager or, or with a firm who is going to, Deploy that to produce something and to do something. What they're doing with it, is that a good thing? Is that something that I want done? Is that something that is good for me and my community and my family? And is that something that's going to create the world that I want to leave to my kids? I don't know how we get better connected to that without that storytelling, without taking it from Uh, reading a balance sheet or a profit and loss to understanding what the impact on what a company does has on an employee or a customer or a community or a forest. You know, whatever that is, I can't get that from a balance sheet. I think a huge part of what we need to do is to ensure that we're telling stories and that people who don't have enough power to be the one writing the chairman's letter at the beginning of the financial report that their story gets told. You know, their story that will never come through in the balance sheet is still one that is heard. And I do think that's really important. And I do think it's really important that we find ways to make this kind of, you know, all of the jargon, all of the financial terms, all of the stuff that is really exclusive and inaccessible for most people that we find ways to make it that people can connect to it with because it has real world impact what we do with capital we you know our superannuation system is what like 2.7 trillion dollars what yeah. that gets invested in has a huge impact on what future our country is going to have and what australia is going to look like in the future because if we used i think it's seven percent of that we could basically fund uh, the transition to renewables in Australia. So we have complete renewable generated electricity with, if, by deploying 7% of that. What we do with this wealth that we have accumulated matters. It really does matter. It has a huge bearing. You know, if all of these new ideas, new markets, new ventures, if they're all the seeds that are being planted, the capital is like the water in our watering can. And we get to choose, you know, which seeds we're going to water. I believe we should be deliberate about that. I believe we should think about what we want to water. What plants do we want to grow? I think that's really important. And I think telling stories about that or storytelling in that process is how we help people to connect to how important that is and connect to the impact that's the real things that are happening. I still go to my head. I still go to the numbers. I still gravitate towards talking from my head space. And I think what storytelling helps me to do is connect to my heart space and connect to the things that are actually most of the time much more important than the numbers or just the numbers. That's what storytelling does for me.
0: Yeah, I think that inclusiveness story is really important, pushing against the the finance norms of jargon, and and that people then do have power, and that people say, oh, I, you know, I don't have any money to invest, but you say, yeah, but your super fund does, and you're putting money in every week. That's your money, and you you have the right to control where that goes, and pick up the phone, and and as Abalash Madaleer said said the other day to me when we chatted, that it's asking the questions. You know, ask it of your power provider, ask it of your pension fund. Do you think? from a skill set role, if there was someone working in finance, even outside, do you think the space requires a certain skill set? Are there any that you've, you've sort of found in your time that are are really useful?
1: So a lot of the toolkit is similar. You know, there's the obvious piece where a lot of people come or, or want to enter the impact investing space. Many people come from finance background. So they worked in the investment bank or they worked in a consulting firm or an accounting firm. So they've come with a financial toolkit. For people that are coming to this space from that direction, the, the obvious piece that is typically not something that they have experience in is the impact side. So actually understanding the complexities of some of the social issues, social and environmental issues that are at times trying to be tackled. And impact investing itself is not the solution. I mean, the investment piece is the financing of someone who is who, who has a a solution. So people can often get confused that the the investing bit is the the answer. It is not the answer. The investing bit is a one tool that could be brought to support a solution. And what we from a finance background can often do is come with this really arrogant paternal sort of approach to people that have been working in these spaces and assume that we are the smart people that have arrived now to come and solve these issues. Mm. And what we often miss is how complex many of these issues are, how much work and passion and dedication and blood, sweat and tears people working in these spaces have put into working with the people that they're working with that are impacted by these issues and how long and complex the road is to finding things that work so that i think is an area where where most of us who come from finance just have a complete underappreciation for we come to this often with no right to try and solve the problem because we haven't done our time you know there's a term uh, we have not apprenticed the problem you know we haven't spent time actually really understanding some of these issues that we are trying to dive in and kind of solve with some fancy financial instrument.
0: And if there was someone out there that that wanted to learn more about impact investing, what book would you recommend? Do you have any that that really stand out as being a good go-to?
1: So I'm going to recommend a book, which I have not read yet (laughs) because I got it last night. Jed Emerson's The Purpose of Capital. I'm really looking forward to reading that. You know, if you want to look at something like Joel Solomon's Clean Money Revolution is an interesting one. How do we take what's good about capitalism and sort of go to version 2.0 where we can produce outcomes that are not just economically good for people, but also within the boundaries of our natural environment and that create and support the type of society that we want to live in? And um, uh, Kate Roworth in her book, Donut Economics, um, is a really good framing for
0: how we might think about that. Excellent. Look, I'm definitely going to be looking that one up. Some really incredible insights there. Generally, and and you know, all about balance and and finding balance. Um, I want to let you go because I know you're in in San Fran, and and we're all really grateful for those insights of you giving us some time today. Hopefully, we'll keep an eye on IOG, and you've got some exciting things coming up. And of course, you'll be at the Impact Investing Summit. Um, at the beginning of November?
1: I will be emceeing. So, uh, oh. you know, be there or be square. It will be awesome as it has been for the last three years and uh, encourage anyone who is curious uh, about impact investing to come along. You know, there'll probably be, I don't know, three, 400 people there. But uh, I think what you find is that the community of people that are working in this space are so giving and generous with both their time and their wisdom that it's a really welcoming space. So I'd, I'd encourage anyone that
0: uh, is available and curious to make sure that they come along. That's right, I can certainly echo that sentiment. Last year was the first time I went and you know, I was really blown away by the diversity of views um, and the warmness and kindness of everybody. And I got something out of every, every talk. So looking forward to that. All right, thank you, Daniel. Chat again Cheers. soon, all the best.